0: Everybody's got their. Everybody's got their brew. We're all good. Yes, thank you. Am uh, I allowed
1: to breathe during this one?
0: Uh, yeah, but just it, that, uh, clearly there is a an issue if you are if you don't have your mouth open, you're going to breathe through your got nose. Got a your nose is cold. right. It's like cold.
1: I don't think that's. Well or do I do this all the time? You this need to
0: modify your behaviour. Oh goodness. That's like saying you don't go on the radio and swear your head off. You modify your behaviour for the broadcasting. Sometimes it's hard not to, though, isn't it? I know. I'd yeah. imagine. I mean, goodness me, when you're having to deal with what you have to deal with.
2: Well. <laughs>
0: Steve, have you done a huge amount of notes? Have you made it onto a third page of notes? I'm, or a, little, or have you... I'm a
1: little bit uh, worried, actually, about Coded. last week and just how detailed and how in-depth Chinch went during his episode. Did I? The bar yeah. has It was, been it was raised. a deep dive on Jimmy Hill. I thought, I thought, I deliberately, I asked to go second, Chinch, because I knew you were going first. I, I didn't know. So I out. assumed <laughs> that that would make me look good
3: but now you've got to raise your game that's basically what you're Well saying. I, see I've got yeah. in on the production ah
1: so I was able to try and manipulate the He the manipulated
0: scenario. me. He manipulated emotionally manipulated me. That's you're the Jimmy st- Hill of this podcast that's you're what basically Steve does. doing yeah. it to, to
3: further your own ends rather yeah. than the good of us or the listening public.
1: Yes basically I'm seeing the value in myself and hoping that that transcends into the value of the podcast but most importantly
0: reflects well back
2: on I'm sure it will. Yeah. Fingers
0: crossed. Yeah. Good luck to you.
2: Do you think everyone's got World Cup fever yet? I don't know. It depends if England are out yet. It's quite interesting, though, isn't it, thinking, thinking of what... does it? I prefer international <laughs> tournaments when England are out of them. In fact, the best international tournaments, in my
1: experience, are the ones that England don't do. Don't do. T-
0: World Cup 94. Uh, Euro
2: 2008.
0: You, Euro 2008.
2: Classic.
1: I've always had a better time at international tournaments when I've not gone to England games. Well, I, I remember seeing you in Nice. Yes, indeed. In Euro 2016. And I've been Throwing projectiles
0: in. at Russian fans.
1: The day before. <laughs> yep. When England played Russia, and it all kicked off, I ha- I hasten to add I was not involved in any of the unsavoury scenes. I think that's a
0: little hasty to be but, true.
1: Because a friend of mine organises those trips, and and we get our tickets in the ballot yeah. before the draw is made. Mm. So and we're all, we always hope that we don't end up where England are. That was the disaster about Marseille. We knew we had tickets for a game in Marseille and we thought, fantastic, what a great place to be during the European Championships. And it was actually a bit of a disappointment when you found out it was England because you know that, yeah, that yeah, co- yeah. unfortunately that there was you know, potential for trouble, it was going to drive the price of everything up and there'd be lots of England fans. Were you in Nice for the Northern Ireland game, was that...? Yeah, I met you, you yeah. after Northern Ireland Poland yeah. at the Allianz Stadium. Yeah. It took you about four days to get back from the Allianz Stadium don't, to the centre of Nice. Don't Stadium. get me started on the Allianz, on the Allianz Stadium. I had to walk with
2: Tony Barrett, now now fans chief at Liverpool. Um, we had to walk back from the Allianz. So there were no buses or taxis. Uh, we had to walk back through the Tartier Nord in Nice. Uh, to the airport and uh, see there. I'd see it was ridiculous.
1: Our, our seats in the stadium just happened to be quite near the press box, so I went over to speak to Rory, and security would not let me get close to him. That's they, not. That they, wasn't. That they, wasn't stadium yeah, security.
2: That was your behest. That was my own security. Yeah.
3: Your own security. So if you're if
0: you're an England yeah. fan heading to Kaliningrad for the game against Belgium, just be grateful that Steve isn't there hurling projectiles exactly. and basically st- starting off World but, War. But III. through
1: the 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 ring of high vis jackets, we did manage to to raise, yeah. uh, to 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 suggest that we met later in Nice for a pizza. <laughs> When I agreed to, I didn't realise that we'd be having that pizza at half past 11, because that's how long it was going to take Rory to get back from the stadium. It wasn't my fault, but it was a good pizza. It was good.
0: (laughs) Just imagine, I love you, I do
2: too, pizza later, yes please.
3: But journalistically, isn't it great to have England in a tournament because there's so many column inches about how terrible they're going to be. For
2: the the British papers, yes. Yes. Uh, But it's a... um, I don't know, I, I kind of think that the way that England dominates, or has dominated, I think it's changed now, I think certainly for Russia... A lot of the English papers were, were sending more people out into the wilds of the tournament mm-hmm. rather than having sort of seven people just doing Gary Cahill press conference quotes, which I suspect yeah. is a is a good idea. Yeah. Hugh's going a start. <laughs> start, Hugh. Okay. You,
1: your next words are welcome to set piece men.
0: This. What? Which one do you want? Welcome or this? Welcome. This is Set Piece Menu, the (laughs) podcast where four friends talk football over food. And welcome to part two of our summer specials to both keep you going during the World Cup and to help you avoid it if you're reaching saturation point. Here on Set Piece Menu, we are talking about people who shaped the modern game. And if you missed it last week, quick, stop this episode, go download the last one and come back in a bit because I don't want to do any spoilers. Yes, Chinch did Jimmy Hill. So <laughs> here we are all again for part two. I'm Hugh Ferris. With me are Rory Smith, who is by now another year older, Stephen Wyeth, oh, yeah. who is already older than his years, and Andy Hinchcliffe, oh. who despite the tattoos and super dry casual wear is most definitely still 49 years old. This is not a super dry t-shirt today. It's not one. Is it George Bayazda? <laughs> We are a little closer to um, enjoying a lunch on Andy. Not literally. There will be no recreation of the sushi scene involving Samantha in Sex in the City. But he Whoa. is taking us to a fine local restaurant as a post-pod treat and because he also doesn't know how to cook. Your correspondence is welcome, even if we won't be able to reflect it until the end of this series. But do get in touch via Twitter at setpiecemenu and on email at Menu uh, at com. And before we go, of course, back by popular acclaim... Even though we've got no way of actually seeing that acclaim or reflecting that acclaim, we'll be playing another game of, I can't believe that happened. But who's next to nominate a person who helped to shape modern football? Stephen is. Stephen's next.
1: Stephen. Hello. We all enjoy the Champions League, don't we? Damn right we do. Gives us quite a lot of excitement. Not from, half. From February onwards. Do LAUGHTER <laughs> Immediately qualified his excellently penned introduction. <laughs> we enjoy seeing English teams in the Champions League. It would seem a bit strange if if they weren't involved, wouldn't it? The top Premier yeah. League clubs not involved in the Champions League, like them being involved until in the last. Yeah, League, I love yeah. watching all yeah. the
3: English teams full of great foreign players. Carry on,
1: Steve. <laughs> so it would seem absurd. <laughs> Just so making
0: notes, like even at
3: Steve. No, I'm writing something hilarious for later. <laughs> sorry, Steve. Carry on. Is
1: this is this for your next your follow up yes. episode about Jimmy here sweet
3: Hill. and sour chicken? How do you spell? <laughs> sorry, carry on. <laughs>
1: a crucial yet bizarrely as it may seem now rebellious decision was taken in the the late 1950s that broadened the horizons of English football. It unified the club game across the continent and was the catalyst ultimately for Manchester United to become one of, if not the, biggest club in world football. 1955-1956, that was the inaugural Season of the European Cup, what we now know as the UEFA Champions League, and Chelsea as the reigning Division One champions. Yes, I was stunned to discover that uh, Chelsea weren't formed in 2003 by a Russian <laughs> oligarch. Uh, they should have been the first English participants. However, Chelsea were persuaded not to take part in the European by Alan Hardiker who was at the time the chairman of the Football League. Alan Hardiker's two
2: other great uh, contributions to football. Uh, Hardiker's folly, what we now call the Carabao Cup, and fo- uh, floodlights. Doesn't, well, floodlights wasn't so bad. Doesn't
0: the man of the match in the, the League Cup final still get the Alan Hardiker trophy? Yeah, they do, which is just a giant floodlight. <laughs>
1: <laughs> now, Alan Hardiker, can you believe, feared that the European Cup would damage the integrity of English football. Yes, and we were best off without it. Because Alan Hardaker
2: was the spirit of Brexit <laughs> 57 years before yes. it, it, it became yeah. necessary.
1: So Chelsea did not take part in the European Cup, even though as the champions of England, they were in, invited to do so. Uh, it was Manchester United's Busby Babes who succeeded mm-hmm. Chelsea as champions of, of England. and
3: See, Chelsea just said, fine, we won't play then.
1: We we would not we we agree with did
0: with the World Cup in the first
3: two
0: iterations
3: yeah Uh, three
1: three
0: iterations so Man United took over
1: yeah Chelsea went along with this because you know because that was the desire of the chairman of the of the football league but but Manchester United and, and and in particular Matt Busby were were not so easily to be deterred I think it was it was a passion of of Matt Busby's to see a European competition and, and that was a new horizon that he wanted to explore and, and to, to succeed in. So certainly, although the pressure was on United as it had been on Chelsea from from the Football League and um United weren't willing in the same way to go along with the, the desires of, of the Luddites. Winning in Europe was, was a burning ambition but Busby alone couldn't make that happen. Yes, he was the driving force, but support would be needed from a, a, an administrative level if they were going to persuade the, the English football hierarchy that uh, that United were going to be able to take up their, their place in, in European competition. So you needed an unsung hero, someone behind the scenes who was able to, to keep the cogs moving and to make it happen and and. The sort of person who, in a film version of this, might be played by Dennis Quaid. <laughs> Absolutely, Quaid would be perfect.
2: Get great Quaid callback. It's, there's going to be a Quaid mention in every episode, just so we're all aware. <laughs> Quite right. The, the
1: makeup department is going to have some work to do with this because yeah. the story goes through perhaps. Two or three decades, so prosthetics right. perhaps will come into Quaid it. Quade could know, do that. Quaid's, we've already Quaid's established. Quade has the range. The
2: thing with Quade is that he can, he can <laughs> oh, play thirty. Right, he can it. play fifty. He can play seventy. It's fine.
1: He's going to have to. He's he going to have to. seventy now
2: because he's sixty-five. So.
1: He's going to have to agree to a cut on his regular seventy-five million fee, though, because this is much more of an art house. This is this is a passion. Project. I really
0: hope people are listening to these in order.
1: <laughs> so woven into the fabric of this of this story, the first team to play in, in European competition is is something of an unsung hero. Walter Krikmar became Manchester United's club secretary in 1926. Uh, Club secretary at the time, a role more akin with with what we'd see as a a modern CEO, chief executive, did pretty much everything away from the football side of of operations. Um, Certainly not secretary in the the way of, you know, he was part of the typing pool and he was plucked out to lead the way. Such was his commitment to United, though, that he he twice deputised his manager, fulfilled all sorts of different roles, within the club and and United was struggling at, at that sort of time late 20s early 30s they were really badly affected by the Great Depression and came very very close to going out of business Crickmar was actually the one who went to Hale Barnes in, in sort of South Manchester on the South Manchester Cheshire border what booths Yeah, where, where, where <laughs> oh, the booths is now I can't I don't
3: even think
0: be- there begin to time. tell you about how good that booths is it's actually, a great we're, get, booth. we're getting off topic again people. Oh, that, that Steven, booths you walk yeah, in booths Quaid Stop it now! Is I've that told why you, Steve? Is that why he went to Hale Barnes, you know, to go
1: to booze? Yeah, to go to booze, <laughs> and, and also to and, visit, and to go and visit the house of Dennis.
0: Quaid. no, <laughs> he wanted to go to the Players Club, where uh, famously lots of old players used to go and get drunk as part of the Marriott Hotel. Is that in Hale Barnes? In Hale Barnes. Yeah. But no, he didn't because that was also. Oh, that's the hotel lie. near the
1: airport. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> th- 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 this Course. This is just which is also Hale
0: Barnes. Yeah, We are
1: still in. We are. Yeah, we are still in Hale Barnes. Yeah. But also Good Lord. <laughs> go parochial pod. <laughs> living in that part of Cheshire at the time was James W. Gibson, one of few local business businessmen who were thriving at the time. And Crickmire managed to persuade Gibson that he should invest in Manchester United. And he signed a cheque for for two thousand pounds, which at the time was enough to pay the backlog on players' wages, deal with some of the administ- administrative issues that United had at the time. So what year and there is this was this? This was the back end of 1931, December right, okay. 1931. Yeah. There was even from that two grand enough left over for a turkey to be bought for every single member of the United playing staff for that Christmas. So it was a lot of money at the time, and it effectively saved. Manchester United. Gibson would later go on to become chairman and he invested a- around £40,000 of his own money in the club, helping rebuild the stadium after it was blitzed during the Second World War. For many Manchester United fans who know their history of the club, he is effectively the man they see as the saviour of-, of what is now the modern Manchester United.
0: Don't you hate it how clubs rely on oligarchs? Yeah, awful. I mean, it's awful. Yeah? What
1: was Gibson's business? <laughs> Something that was made in a factory. Right,
2: like, like uh, Underworld in Coronation Street. Yeah. Yes. Okay. A in fact, his factory
0: was Underworld. Fine. Do
1: you want me to find out? No, it's okay. okay. <laughs> so, Crickmar and Gibson became cohorts in terms of running Manchester United. Gibson as chairman-owner, Crickmar as club secretary, CEO, call him whatever you want. They even bought into place the, the youth development system for which, of course, Manchester United has, has become world-renowned. Ben
2: Thornley, people like that, yeah.
1: I mentioned that Crickmar twice was deputised as manager of the club one of those was during the course of the Second World War which made him one of United's longest serving managers they might not have been playing much at the time but he he was in place from 1937 until he appointed Matt Busby in January 1946 Mm -hmm. a crucial decision I think we can all agree in the history of Manchester United but something else that he did just as important was to back Busby in his dream of taking the club into Europe he was heavily influential in persuading Stanley Rouse, who was chairman of the Football Association at the time, that he should back United's desire. And they effectively circumnavigated the whims of hardiker and the Football League, defied the Football League with the FA's backing and United went into Europe. For the first time as champions and became the first English club to play in Europe in September 1956 when they went to Brussels and beat Anderlecht 2-0. They won the return leg 10-0. That remains Manchester United's biggest win in European competition. But of course, United's early foray into Europe had a, a tragically short life. Just 17 months later, uh, United were returning from a quarter-final the following season in the European Cup at Red Star Belgrade. They landed in Munich to refuel and in terrible conditions the plane crashed on takeoff. 23 people lost their lives in that disaster. It decimated the, the Busby Babes. But one other life that was lost in that crash was Walter Kritmeyer, the man who had helped save the club in the early 1930s, who had seen the club through the Second World War, who had made the decision to appoint Busby in 1946, helped put in place the youth system that Busby so heavily relied on, um, which basically gave us the Busby Babes and then in more latter years, the Fergie Fledglings, and had been pivotal to English football having a representation in Europe for the first time in defiance of those who who ran the domestic game. So it, it... It is tragic that someone who worked so hard to make that happen lost their life as effectively as a consequence of United playing in Europe for the first time. But English football owes Walter Krikmaar a huge debt of gratitude. Yes, Matt Busby might get the credit, deservedly so, for for being the, the managerial inspiration behind getting United into Europe. And James W. Gibson's money might be the reason that the club was saved and went on to become the footballing behemoth that it is now, but without Walter Crickmire's dedication, service and and vision for what was the right thing for the club to do going forward, we wouldn't potentially have a Manchester United now. We wouldn't have all that Sir Alex Ferguson achieved. We wouldn't have had those dominating years of the the 1990s and the noughties. We wouldn't have had the the Busby Babes, second generation of Busby Babes team that went on to, to win the 1968 European Cup. And yeah, perhaps somebody else would have led their team into Europe at some point, but but they didn't. Walter Crickmire and Matt Busby led Manchester United into Europe in 1956, and four other clubs went on to to lift the the European trophy. So Walter Crickmire was a, a visionary that that had a huge influence on the English game so in, in terms, terms of its place United's
3: in philosophy, in terms of domestically, but most importantly in Europe. Because you hear a lot about Matt Busby and. Is what what he did for United is is he as well known by United fans as to the influence he had on those early because he's not a name that I've ever heard before would United fans who know their stuff know about this
1: guy not perhaps as much as they do the, the history, the story of Busby. Mm. And, and say more recently, there's been a real campaign to recognise what, what James W. Gibson did in terms of investing in the club and, and saving it from going out of business in, in the early 1930s and say rebuilding Old Trafford when it was blitzed during the war. United actually played their first three home games in, in the European Cup at Main Road, the home mm. of Manchester City, because Old Trafford was still being redeveloped and didn't have floodlights to play. Night games, so yeah. that was that was the club was still being rebuilt at that point that they were going into Europe. So I think those who really know their United history know about the the influence of Walter Crikmeyer. But
3: how old was it, he when he died in the in the crash?
1: He was 58 when he died on the the sixth of February 1958 in the Munich air disaster. So he still yeah. had he still had a, still exactly, had a bit yes. more to offer. He was not yeah. a young man, but uh, he, he still had a lot to to contribute. Uh, James W Gibson had actually died in 1951 so he didn't get to live to see the the fruit of his labours of his investment he, he got to see United win the FA Cup in 1948 but he didn't get to see Matt Busby lead the team to their to their first uh, English division one title he didn't get to see them play in Europe for the first time so so Walter Crickmar was very much the transitional figure and influence during that that decade between um, between James W Gibson and Harold Harold Hardman who would become his successor as, as chairman. So I think those yeah those who know their united history know about Walter Crickmar, but they they perhaps don't if we look at the ideology of of Manchester United being English football's first yeah. representative in Europe and and blazing a trail for Liverpool, Nottingham Forest, Chelsea, Aston Villa to Celtic. Celtic to to go on as as British champions in in Europe then his, his was a really big influence because without without somebody who he, he was the, the the small but perhaps important cog in the machine that uh, that enabled united to persuade English football that this was the right thing is to is
3: do. he remembered at old Trafford because obviously there's a lot of stuff at football grounds now about the history of clubs, i presume his part in the United story will be, it'll be somewhere around Old Trafford. James Gibson, I'm pretty sure James Gibson. He's there, I'm sure he will be. Next time I go, that's something that's, you have fascinated me, Steve. You really
0: have. Now turn over to CD2 in our audio (laughs) book on Manchester United. But Rory, Mm. you clearly have written the book, Mister, and and this is an example of how um, English football, against the better judgment of quite a lot of people who are running the game, did something that proved to be, Absolutely crucial in what happened in the seventy years. Well, following. yeah, the fact that it
2: was hardly and the Football League that objected to kind of kind of the European competition as a concept it is telling. Does the the FA whenever we whenever we talk about the failings of English football, we always say, "Well, the FA do this." Blazes at the FA, but the Football League, worse. The Football <laughs> League are absolute. Well, yes, we'll just leave that gap
0: and people or, can fill it. As, the Football League
2: like. for years were absolutely awful in terms of. Like we talked last week about Jimmy Hill and kind of how he saw what the game could be. The Football League had no idea. They were, just, they were so protectionist and so cautious and so isolationist and so arrogant that I would say you, you can make a case that the Football League were worse than the FA in terms of, of restricting English football.
3: So somebody coming along and saying we want to play in Europe. This would have been,
2: whoa. This well, is- so it, it shouldn't have been a surprise because in, I was going to say that in the, in the years immediately post-war, so English teams had always toured the continent Right before the Second World War, that that was a thing. The, friendly They go so out yeah. and play friendlies, and yeah. it, was, it was it was kind of a sort of a teach it was a teachable yeah. moment. Yeah. The English would turn up in in France or Spain or one of these countries. We'll show you how to play. We'll play. We'll show you how to play this bloody game, and mm-hmm. be, get, get beat. And, and then and, yeah. and then <laughs> in the early years, the the English would smash the opposition, and then throughout the nineteen twenties, thirties, it started being the case that the English would lose, and then find excuses for why they'd lost, which obviously became something that the English were extremely good at. Yeah, excellent, yeah. Uh, but immediately post-war it started to flip a little bit and you started to get more and more club teams national teams had visited Austria came in 1933 I think Italy came in 1934 uh, but club teams started to come to England in the, f- in the late 40s and early 50s and the, the, I mean, the famous ones were, were Dinamo Moscow, who came in 1945-46 and were kind of the the representatives of Red Russia mm. and played English teams off the park in which they called it Passavoirche, and it was the type of football that the English had never seen before. Yeah. These great—I'm th- sure it was Dynamo, it might have been Spartak as well—but there was a, a Russian team that came across. And then you had these games in 19, in the early 1950s. I forget the year between Wolves, mighty mighty Wolves, mm-hmm. and Honvéd, who were obviously the yeah. team that provided the bolt of the Hungarian yeah. Magical Magyar team that beat the English 6-3 in 1953, and then thought that was fun, let's do it again, and then smashed them 7-1 in Budapest in 1954. The the famous uh, uh, Billy Wright rushing like a fireman to the wrong fire game at yep. Wembley, uh, in Jeffrey Green's phrase. So Wolves played Honved, and I think that's the game that gave Gabriel Anno, the journalist with Le Keep, the idea for the European Cup, because it that was sort of seen as an unofficial world championship, because yep. Wolves were English champions, uh, taking monkeyed lands, of course, that was how Wolves did it. They their, their front, uh, Major Buckley, their manager, gave them monkeyed lands, and in inverted commas, to help them perform better. Uh, Did the monkeys look, know this was happening? The monkeys were <laughs> delighted by it. Yeah. The um, and then Honved were were the team of the, the club team that were the bulk of the Hungarian national side. That was seen as the unofficial world championship, and I think Hanno took the idea and thought this is something we can we can um, we can build on and turn into an actual competition. And in Europe there was a lot of buy-in, but in England there was a lot of resistance because of the the age-old thing of the English didn't want the foreigners to prove that yeah. maybe the English weren't yeah. the best at football, uh, which is why Chelsea rejected it. And I think it's really important from. English football's history and Manchester United's football history—that it was United that did it, because the Premier League is so popular now, partly because it's built on Manchester United. That it was the the brand of Manchester United that enabled the Premier League to push through all those all those barriers in the far east and in in the states and all over the world, because Manchester United was such a, a such a sort of resonating name when the Premier League started Manchester United was not the most successful club in England as that was Liverpool by yeah. a long way yeah. obviously now it's it's flipped but United was still a bigger brand and as weird as it is to say it to an extent United was a bigger brand because of Munich yeah, and there, is, no, no, a, there is
0: amongst several generations worth of of people not only in this country but but everywhere else. My too. dad, my dad too, is then. a Leicester
2: fan, but has always liked Manchester United yeah, for because exactly of Munich. Reason, yeah. And I think I think it's something that's been lost a little bit in the last twenty years. But there is a reason that United were the most popular club in England, and it's because of the massive outpouring of sympathy yeah. in Britain, but also across across the world. Because I mean, Real Madrid offered them Di Stefano and pushed on loan after Munich, and United I think said no. For, I'm not entirely sure why they said no, but they said no. And certainly to two or three generations, Manchester United was a team that you wanted to do well because you knew the horror they'd
1: suffered. Yeah. And that's really important. Well, Real Madrid tried to to get Matt Bosby to leave United for the Bernabeu, saying that he would find it like managing in paradise. And the famous quote was, he said, no, Manchester United is my heaven, which is why you see that that banner at, at Old Trafford, Manchester Manchester United is my heaven. Yeah, def- definitely. Munich is a big reason, you know, and that's why the Walter Kriptmas story is fascinated me so much. In that, you know, it was his his decision making along the way that led to that that tragic moment. That and for so him particularly, ways, he, yeah, yeah.
0: He, he had done that work, and he was one of the people yeah, that suffered so tragically he, in Munich.
1: He lost his life, but those those un, unbeknown to them at the time, those those twenty three that died in Munich made a sacrifice that led to the club becoming even bigger. That the, the sympathy, the empathy that people felt for United after that, the, the outpouring of grief, led to this this sort of global fan base that, that they have. Obviously, success under Sir Matt Busby and then Sir Alex Ferguson helped contribute to that. But, you know, Man- Manchester United fans get a lot of stick from being from all parts of the country other than Manchester, but... But that's and that's one of the big yeah. one of the big reasons why, and and it, quite recently the the last member of the Grande Torino side that had dominated Italian football in the in the sort of 30s and 40s, well mainly in the 1940s, and and made up a, a bulk of the Italian national side, that that was another tragic air crash that wiped out the entire pretty much Grande Torino team in 1949. And, one player who wasn't on the flight um, died quite recently in, in 2018 and he was the last survivor of, of that famous team. And, and one of the, the, the things of that story, the legacy of that story, was, was why did Torino not become as famous off the back of that tragedy as Manchester United did? But so much had, had changed from the late 1940s to the late 1950s in the way that we absorbed news in the way that this story traveled in in the fact that there was you know images that people could see of the, the tragedy in munich that that manchester united became renowned off the back of, of their tragedy in the way that that torino didn't because that story didn't spread in the same way and we're still actually learning more about that story now 69 years later than the many people have known for the last few decades but there
2: must be a part as well that compa- not, not to, to compare tragedies particularly but Torino have always had a reputation of being stuck in 1949 even now there's, you, I've got mates in, in Italy who are Torino, Torino fans and they will say look this is a club that is not over this tragedy that the, the Grande Torino team still kind of casts a pall over the entire club that there is a knowledge that, that they are almost frozen in time that, is, that was Torino's moment
1: they say in Turin Juventus are the team that was given everything and Torino was the team that had everything, everything taken, taken away.
2: away. Uh, but manage, but, but, but Manchester, United, on, Ma- sorry, on, Manchester United, because of Busby, and that, again this isn't to do down Trippmeyer, but it's it's it was his appointment, but because they had Busby, Busby survives and Busby set about rebuilding. And I think the the thing that always that always kind of blows my mind, even though you you know it, that in in nineteen fifty eight Matt Busby lost twenty three well, they weren't all players, obviously. There were journalists and coaching and coach and coach and staff killed as well. But um, more than lost, a more lost, than a team's worth, he lost more than a team's worth of players, including Duncan Edwards, who was his who was his best player, effectively, and was the you know the, the big hope. And it's, it's one of the great questions: what would have happened hmm. in nineteen fifty 1950, the nineteen fifty eight World Cup hmm. if Munich hadn't happened? There's, Munich is a huge what if moment because what what would have happened if that Manchester United team had made the final and played Real Madrid? Because Real were in the midst of their run of five straight European Cups. United could have stopped that. That United team was good enough to stop that, in theory. Certainly better equipped to stop it than most other teams in Europe. What if England had gone to the World Cup with its Manchester United contingents? It wasn't just Edwards. There There was Tommy Taylor. Tommy Taylor as well. Many more,
0: yeah.
2: Tommy Taylor's scoring record was something extraordinary, It was insane. Tommy Taylor's scoring record was ridiculous. And what if England had gone to the 1958 World Cup? Would we have had Pele? Would that game in the final... Where Pele draws two against the Swedes, including the, the the little sombrero over the head of the defender, and becomes this sort of the greatest footballer of all time, because at 17 he wins a World Cup. It sounds stupid, and I, I think everyone listening to this podcast would know that I am not an England. I'm not an England fan. Would England have? England maybe would have made the final there because that, that was a hugely talented team anyway. It, I might, the guess is with English football in the 1950s, they probably wouldn't have done. <laughs> yeah, but for
0: reasons M- already discussed Munich, on this podcast. Be-
2: Munich becomes a huge what-if moment. But what's amazing about Munich is that 10 years later, after losing more exactly. than an entire team in a, in a plane crash, Busby does and wins the European Cup. So the, the what-if the what is extraordinary, not only because
0: of the talent that was lost, but in the fact that it was overcome within 10 years. It, which
2: is ridiculous. And in, I mean, you, you can understand why, you can understand why Torino are still what we're fifty-one, 70, know, about, 60, about seventy ca- years carry the carry the one, <laughs> seventy years <laughs> on from the Grande Torino disaster.
0: It's because they they didn't have that but ten years they, they, later. That's but, why. But
2: they they also didn't maybe they didn't have the visionary coach who thought yeah. who. Who was surviving? As, who Munich, survived and yeah. then thought, right? Well, the way to honor this legacy yeah. is to go and do it again.
1: Everyone perished in the Grande Torino, the Superga disaster, yeah. whereas you know Busby and one or two players maybe that's it. survived yeah. 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 in Munich. So, so that that perhaps is one of the big differences between the story. And you're quite you're quite right. I mean, what what in having having lived in Manchester for two decades and having spent a lot of time working in the football media in Manchester, you know, I, I, the Munich story is one that. I've had to cover on numerous occasions I've always been fascinated by the way the club recovered from that but, but it, I was drawn to Walter Crickmer's story because he's a lesser player in it but without him lots of the major players in the role wouldn't have fallen into place mm-hmm. and more, the, the other thing is is you know what if he hadn't appointed Busby yeah. United might not have succeeded Chelsea as division 1 champions in 19, in the late in the in, in sort of in 1956 1957 Maybe another club wouldn't have had the gumption to stand up to the Football League at that time. I think if Blackpool finished second the year that United won it for the first time. Would you know? I, I don't know who was running Blackpool at the time. I don't know what their ideologies would have been. But would they have followed suit with Chelsea and, and fallen in line behind the Football League? Because Manchester United didn't. It would have happened at some point. Of course, it would have done. But would it have happened in time? For, for English football to have got a foothold in Europe at at, at the point That's at which they did
3: fact, and, and Munich you're absolutely right it's such a seismic change in the English game but United's adventure in Europe had started before that with Krik What the, the vision that he had as you say those European sides Russian sides were coming over to play and the English game was actively kicking against it they wanted to show how good we were against those teams, but Krikmar was actually saying, "Well, we want that competition to prove how good we yeah. are."
1: Bus- Busby was the one saying, so "We that want vision. that," but yeah. he needed he needed a lieutenant. Yeah.
3: But then, to a point, obviously, the appointment of Busby as well and yeah. surviving, yes, surviving Munich is key. But appointing Busby as well, having the vision to see what European and United in Europe or English yeah. teams in Europe could be, is huge, isn't it? And it is, of course. So sad he, he lost his life in the in the disaster. But what he'd already the process had already started and then United with Munich from what happened then in the next 10 years was shaped clearly and the desire and like you say the sympathy from around the globe for United as well drove them on to greater and greater success but he started that process before the Munich disaster really with how he, how he saw European football United within
0: it. What's fascinating about Crickmar's appointment of Sir Matt Busby is that Matt Busby, the bulk of Matt Busby's career was played at Manchester City and then he joined Liverpool so there would not be any... Person in hierarchy at Manchester United these days who would appoint a player who played at Manchester City and Liverpool for the Manchester United job, and it's a completely different. Robbie era. Fowler, but <laughs> clearly <laughs> he watched. is the next Manchester United manager. But that, I mean, it, it is anachronistic to suggest that. It, 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 but, yeah. but still, it, but still it does it's that, just interesting.
2: It, it is interesting, and it, it does kind to show maybe how the tribalism has. It's n- the, the, the tribalism with which we live is not the natural state. And of I, the think, first I think I think
0: the war I would imagine would have completely. Negated a sense of tribalism. Yeah, well, I don't,
2: I, I don't know. Well, Busby was Scottish, obviously, so so that maybe helped a little bit. I guess that he wasn't. It's not he, like he wasn't a scouser. The you wonder whether the war maybe wiped the slate clean a little bit, yeah. and and because everyone was, lots of players were playing in in exhibition games for the the story of the war. By the way, is fascinating in the way that that influenced English football and held it back. But um, the people were playing for ex- exhibition games for these sort of composite teams, and I wonder whether that made it after six years of war. You maybe forgot that Matt Busby played for Liverpool because he'd been playing. If he'd been playing for a Manchester Select Eleven or whatever, then then you wouldn't necessarily asso- associate him just with Liverpool. But it was still a brave decision, and it was a, a visionary one because, as I say, if, if Manchester United don't become Manchester United, then no matter what the Premier League does in when they when they start when they start the Premier League in nineteen ninety two, without that brand to force it force it through to basically to force it down people's throats with. Without that sense that this huge giant wins its first title in in the first year of the Premier League, which becomes the story of the Premier League, Manchester United, Manchester United dominating the competition, that's the that's the battering ram that English football used to start dominating the, the kind of the, the global footballing conversation. So without Manchester United's very specific and very tragic history, then you don't get the modern Premier League phenomenon without a shadow of a doubt. So in that sense. Crickmayer is not just a significant figure, I think, and I didn't know anything, don't, didn't know the story at all. But it, he's obviously not just a significant figure in, Uni- in United's history; he's a he's a crucial figure yeah. in English football's history.
0: Here's a man who helped to shape modern football.
2: What well, oh, we should be doing a podcast. Can I
0: that. can I
3: add something frivolous but hilarious? Yes, I like the connection between 1931 and 2018. This is it. Gibson's two thousand pounds that he put into Manchester United that Crikmayer said he should yeah. invest bought turkeys. For all the United players, is that true? There was enough money. Isn't it great in 2018 to see so many turkeys on the pitch? (laughs) Isn't it
1: wonderful (laughs) that
0: connection? I love it.
1: I don't think they had to run out with them under their arms (laughs) just to prove they got them.
0: Turkey mascots (laughs) (laughs) holding the hand of each and every one. Hands.
1: The claw. Turkish... Claw. Oh right,
0: okay. <laughs> claw, claw. <laughs> uh, now before uh, we go, and thank you for making a beautiful link from something so, serious. It was also to so it was and
3: wonderfully serious,
0: but, no, but I, that was I that was that was brilliant, brilliant Steve. Like, brilliant. Like, that was cracking. From like oil. two thousand pounds from James Gibson, I needed you then, yes. to help me get to this. Before yes. we go, it's time to play. I can't believe that happened. We release the pod on a Wednesday each week, and owing to Rory's proper job, taking him out to Russia. Uh, we've got That's this. We, we've got this series. He's learnt He's learned uh, more since he was out there. I promise you. Uh, we've got this. Series in the bag before the World Cup started. So, for no other reason than just pure fun, we're going to predict what happened in the games on the Tuesday prior to each episode's debut. And I think you'll all agree, the first playing of this game was sensational last week. So, accurate. on Tuesday, yeah, very accurate. It proved to be so. Tuesday, the 26th of June, Group C and D came to their dramatic Ooh. conclusions. Ooh. Goodness that's me. That's what happened yesterday is the big question on everybody's lips. Well, you know, so if you don't, here's what's happened. Um, Australia and Peru played, Denmark and France played, that's Group C. And in Group D, Iceland against Croatia, Nigeria against Argentina. It's time to play, I can't believe that happened. Rory? I can't believe Argentina
1: missed all of those chances and went out at the group stage. Stephen. I can't believe I had to go upstairs to watch Iceland against Croatia on the small TV because the missus was determined she was going to follow Nigeria or Argentina (laughs) all the way through.
0: She is a big fan of Alex Iwobi.
3: And Uh, Chinch. I'll have to go for Australia against Peru. The way that koala bear (laughs) rose like a hairy salmon at the far post a bullet aheader, header past the hapless Peruvian goalkeeper to send Australia through. Extraordinary. If
2: you were really committed to that bit, you'd have pointed out that it was a Peruvian llama in goal. <laughs>
0: Who needs Tim Cahill? I can't believe that Chinch uh, used some sort of quasi lazy stereotypical racism to end the podcast with.
2: <laughs> just, just as a, as, a, as a slightly more serious prediction, Australia are going to be awful in this World Cup.
0: Have been awful. On May, well, no,
2: everyone knows. Everyone knows what's happening to you. But Leave I can't believe it. that happened. But they are. They're going to be bad. Why? Because they're not very good.
0: <laughs> Excellent. That, point That is analysis. <laughs> Hot takes from Rory Smith. Don't forget there'll be a soccer story at the end of part Australia four. I'm really bad. Titch is going to make Australia. notes of that as he is about his soccer story to come later. After the end of the series, we'll also get to some of your correspondence. Please do get in touch in the meantime at Setpiece Menu on Twitter and menu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, rate, share, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule at this very big, busy time of the soccer year. Thank you to Steve. Rory and Andy, and thank you to you all for listening. We'll be back with part three of our set piece menu summer special for you to enjoy very soon.
2: You know how you always think of good things just too late. Yes. But the thing to say that for the I can't believe that's just happened is is I can't believe Australia spent all that time tampering with the ball and still <laughs> went ah, out of the World ah, Cup. Nice. Because they cheat at sport, don't they? You can have as
0: many bites of that particular cherry Excellent. as you like. So they
1: cheat
2: at sport. They cheat at sport. <laughs> you Are know, we Australians? Clear on that? Yeah,
1: yeah. They cheat at sport.
0: Apparently how, that's happened.
1: How would you. Could you tamper with a football? To get a bit more swazz on.
2: Well, I'll t- 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 tell you who did tamper with the football to get a bit more, or with, with the equipment to get a bit more swaz, was Craig Johnston. Yes. And what was he?
3: Predator boots. Aust- An Australian. Oh. Tampering with the boots, though. Not Tampering the with the boots.
2: Cheating. Don't think it actually worked, though. It was, the Predators were a bit of a myth, weren't they? Did you wear Predators when you were No,
3: playing? I, I could get swaz on a ball. I meant to do it. So, I needed a pair of boots to do it. Because you know on, that,
1: the Ronaldo sort of drogba technique of hitting the valve the of the ball? ball yeah. so, so do we think that Mile Jedinak has got some special way of manipulating the valve to protrude a little bit further so that he'll get even more swaz on it? I
2: think what's impressive about the Australians is they've obviously manipulated the ball so that they can boot it high over the goal. <laughs> Do you think so? <laughs> yeah? So it's essentially uncontrollable. Mm. Oh, I mean, this and a
0: really koala? Not strictly speaking, a bear. I didn't say it was a bear. What is it? You like said a, sp- a koala bear. Is it a squirrel? <laughs> it's definitely more of a squirrel than it is a They're bear. They're known as koala bears, aren't they? Yeah, but apparently that's inaccurate. So marsupial. They are koalas. Are they marsu- is it a marsupial? No, it's a squirrel.
2: It's just a fat squirrel. It's just
0: a big, fat Anyway, squirrel. it rose like a hairy salmon at the far <laughs> post. <laughs> hairy salmon. Also popular in Australia. <laughs>